Welcome to Suspending the Rules, Bloomberg Government's weekly look at what's happening in Congress. We are now into the fifth week of the longest government shutdown in American history. Over the weekend, President Donald Trump said he was willing to temporarily reinstate the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, also known as DACA, which he ended in 2017 in exchange for money to fund the border wall. Welcome to Suspending the Rules from Bloomberg Government. I'm Adam Taylor. And I'm Danielle Parnas. This week, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has teed up a seven-bill spending package that includes the president's proposal while the Democratic-led House will vote on its own spending legislation, combining six of the seven outstanding appropriations bills for this fiscal year. In the second segment, we'll change gears and talk about a Democratic proposal to increase the minimum wage. We start today, however, with what else? The spending fight. We've got our BGov legislative analyst team lead Adam Shank and legislative analyst Michael Smallberg here to help us dive into both the House bill, H.R. 648, and the Senate's package. Welcome back, guys. Thanks for having us. The president made his pitch over the weekend, offering to extend DACA for three years in exchange for $5.7 billion in border wall funding, with some other changes to immigration laws in there as well. What's part of the proposal? So uh, like you said in the top, he did offer the three-year sort of reinstatement of the DACA program. And then in addition to that, there were some proposed changes to temporary protected status and to the way that immigrants coming from Central America would apply for asylum. And, And under the proposal, those individuals would apply for asylum in their home country rather than coming to the border and coming to a port of entry of the U.S. and trying to apply for it there. And one interesting interesting thing about the border wall, just to unpack that a bit, it would provide $5.7 billion, but about $4 billion would actually be emergency spending that doesn't count against the spending caps. And it wouldn't just necessarily go towards one big concrete wall. DHS could use some of, of, of that funding on um, roads, lighting, cameras, sensors, um, other parts of sort of the border security package. And there would still be a restriction, at least for the rest of this fiscal year, on the types of designs that could go into those border barriers. So you can maybe see sort of the, the opening of what could eventually be um, a deal on this border wall funding where both sides can can say that they won something. Going back to the immigration changes that are in this proposal, there's been opposition from both sides. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi has said that the, the proposal involves a lot of aspects of previously rejected deals and said that this package would be dead on arrival in the House. What, what are some of the conservative opposition saying? So it's really interesting. The Democrats' opposition is obviously sort of the, the bog standard. You know, they're opposed to the wall. The, the proposal was sort of very irksome to Democrats because you had President Trump and the DACA program and now is coming in to offer, you know, uh, to, to bring it back for a shortened period of time. On the conservative side, you have this divide where you have some Republicans that have sort of backed immigration reform more broadly in the past. Senator Marco Rubio is one. Even Senator Lindsey Graham at one point was, was on board with sort of a broader overhaul a, a few years ago. But you'll have some of the groups on the right saying any kind of temporary protected status or extension of DACA would be quote unquote amnesty. And so it's not clear if you can get the Republicans on on one page on this proposal. And like I said, the Democrats sort of view it as, you know, you're paying the kidnapper for babysitting to a certain degree. But on the right, it's really unclear how it will shake out. It sounds like most of the leadership is on board with it. They view it as, you know, sort of Trump making, uh, President Trump making an, an offer to end the shutdown. But, you know, Democrats obviously don't view it that way. 
way. And so I guess the question is, will it even get past the Senate where Republicans, um, as you're mentioning, themselves might be a little bit split and they will also need some Democratic support to advance it as well? Yeah, that is definitely going to be a really tall hurdle for them to get over because they will need seven Democrats to join them in advancing this legislation. That seems highly unlikely. At this point, I think you would maybe peel off one or two at the most. And just to highlight the difficulty in getting Democrats on board, this package does include about $12.7 billion for disaster aid, which was supposed to sweeten the pot for for Democrats. But in looking at this bill this morning, it looks like the Senate actually took out a provision from the House passed disaster aid bill last week that would have provided $600 million in nutrition assistance for Puerto Rico, which was a big priority for Democrats. So again, even something that was supposed to incentivize Democrats could actually end up pushing some of them away. Uh, House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn responded to this on on TV this weekend, saying that if there is a deal involving these immigration changes and and anything else in this package, Democrats would want a permanent solution for DACA and TPS. Is this the start of actual negotiations going forward? It certainly feels that way. You know, whether or not the Democrats view this as a credible offer or not, I I think is sort of moot to a certain degree because this is still the, the president putting forward something for the first time, regardless of sort of how you view it. And then, you know, it will also be the first time that the Senate has attempted to take up legislation that would reopen the government. So it's sort of a a baby step forward, but it it does seem to crack the door open a little bit for sort of broader negotiations. The one thing that will complicate it is our colleague Jack Fitzpatrick wrote this morning that, you know, they're going to try to broaden the deal or bring more elements into it. So, you know, you can try to build that support and and build compromise. So it, it has moved the ball forward to a certain degree, but whether or not we've made significant progress here remains to be seen. The House has voted numerous times since the new Congress began three weeks ago on full-year funding bills for most of the agencies that have been closed during the shutdown. What's different about the package that they have teed up this week? So on the Senate side, you do have the Homeland Security bill folded in, the disaster package, and then the immigration provisions. But the, the broader spending package is largely the same as what, on the Senate side, the spending package is largely the same as what the House is going to vote on this week. There were some bills floating out there from last year that were sort of pre-conferenced is is what they used, but I don't know that they actually had a conference committee on them, but they were sort of pre-negotiated and it seems like they were going to clear or, you know, get over the the hump here on on those before the shutdown happened. And, you know, I think that these bills probably will make up the the framework for a final agreement, but, you know, whether or not and when they come to that agreement, it just isn't clear. Yeah. as, As Jack Fitzpatrick mentioned, this show recently, the the six bills that are not Homeland Security are essentially done. As far as negotiations, they just are being tied to DHS and the border wall immigration fight. But the numbers are pretty similar at this point between the House version they're going to vote on this week and the Senate's new bill, right? Yeah, that's correct. Great. Well, we will be right back to discuss the Democrats' minimum wage bill. The federal minimum wage would more than double under legislation House and Senate Democrats introduced last week. The bill, called the Raise the Wage Act, would make several other changes as well. Danielle Parnas has jumped to the other side of the table for this segment, where she joins Bloomberg Law labor policy reporter Tyrone Richardson to help us break this down. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. The bill's changes are in line with progressive activists' Fight for 15 platform, 
and is facing the usual opposition from Republicans. Tyrone, what what's, what are the arguments on this one? I think for the supporters, they're saying that it's long overdue. They're looking at the idea, having seen a raise for this uh, wage floor in about a decade now. And they're saying, you know, looking at uh, workers are not making enough money to do the basic needs they have to have a life. And you're seeing protests, marches. Uh, it's been constantly happening now uh, as a way to sort of gain steam and support. we've seen cities take it up and, and start putting a $15 minimum wage in Seattle and D.C. and elsewhere. That's correct. That's correct. There are some local that have done their own thing. Tyrone, what about opponents uh, to this? What are they saying? Well, they're saying to be very cautious. Don't go ahead and give a $15 minimum wage across the entire country. They're saying there are some who are okay with the idea of a wage hike, $15 an hour for New York, California, sort of the higher wage in regions of, 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 the, of the country. But they're fearing that perhaps at those locations, like in the middle of the country, Kansas, etc., may not, they cannot take on a, a wage that high for workers across the board. And the, is the concern that, you know, that would affect jobs if, if companies or businesses can't afford to pay that amount, then, you know, they might not be able to hire as many people or afford to pay them. That's correct. They're they're saying what will happen. You'll see fewer hours for employees. You'll see closing down of actual businesses. Uh, you'll see a uh, what they're saying. You'll see a lot of this uh, cutback because they cannot afford to pay uh, workers that that wage. Danielle, this wouldn't be an overnight change. How is how would the bill get us to fifteen dollars an hour? So it would gradually increase the minimum wage over about five years, and it would start you know, essentially a couple months after if the bill is enacted, the minimum wage would go from seven twenty five an hour to eight fifty five. And then essentially by twenty twenty four, assuming the legislation was enacted this year, at that point it would reach fifteen dollars an hour and then they would adjust it for any changes in the median hourly wages for employees. You know, one of the arguments against the current framework from the minimum wage is that it's not indexed to inflation. So it's sort of just been set at this one amount while other costs have risen. Beyond the federal wage floor, Tyrone, as we discussed earlier, each state has a different minimum wage framework. Many of them require higher minimum wages. Even some cities require them beyond what their states do. How would this bill play out across the country? And would there be repercussions like states going higher than $15 an hour? Well, first of all, it'll be an across-the-board increase up to $15 an hour for workers. And right now, there are 29 states that have their own wage laws that are actually higher than the current federal minimum wage. And, and you'll see some states will actually will, they will have to pick up that, that current wage of $15 an hour across the board. You have to mandate that for your next uh, wage floor. I mean, as far as what other states go, will they go you know beyond that number? It's not quite known yet. Another thing this bill would do, Danielle, is stop the differential treatment of tipped workers, youth workers, and workers with disabilities. Tell us a little bit about that. So there are um, lower wages for, as you said, those who receive the bulk of their income from tips for individuals younger than 20 and for those with disabilities. So what this bill would do is sort of gradually increase those amounts until they reach the federal minimum wage and at that point essentially eliminate the lower amounts. So kind of aligning all the different frameworks for different groups of employees so that they're the same. I believe the sponsors of this bill estimated that would occur in about 2027 where they would all be aligned. So um, it would still take a little bit longer to get there, but the point is to sort of stop this differential treatment. Given the significant changes in this bill and the political dynamics we've talked about, Tyrone, what are the chances of this actually going anywhere during this Congress? So this is going to be a very key piece with Democrats in the first part of the Congress here. It's a new Congress. It's, their, it's one of their first 
policies to come out is to raise the wage here. And it's looking to go through the House pretty fast with a vote that's going to look looks to be passing on the House side because it's controlled by Democrats. But the real problem will come in on the Senate side where I have spoken to a few key lawmakers there on the Republican side who have said they're not for the idea of a federal mandate. They're not for the idea of this high wage for some areas of the country. And what they're saying is that this should be it should be controlled by the markets. It should be controlled by the local governments, not by a federal mandate, they're saying. So it can go through on the House side, but it's going to have some problems on the Senate side. That's our show. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks, Tyrone, for coming on. We will be back with another episode next week. Stay warm out there. Thank you for listening to Suspending the Rules. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. Find out more about the topics we discussed today and a whole lot more from Bloomberg government at about.bgov.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at bgov. The legislative analyst team is Sarah Babbage, Noreen Chowdhury, Daniel Parnas, Michael Smallberg, and me, Adam Taylor. Our editor is Adam Schenk. Nico Anzalata is our sound engineer. Our theme music is Home Organ by Zach Nasita. More information can be found at premiumbeat.com. <laughs>